0: Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the weekly show for and about people who think big. I'm Vas Christodoulou, the Academy's Deputy Director and the producer of this series, introducing you to the guest thinkers we host in our live programme of talks, debates, conferences and festivals here in London. This week, Matthew Stadlin meets Matthew Syed, the Times columnist and former Olympic table tennis player whose book Rebel Ideas presents a new recipe for success in any institutional or team setting. Matthew draws on psychology, economics and anthropology to make a compelling case for cognitive diversity.
2: Matthew, in very simple terms, tell me about diverse thinking.
1: Well, I think it's worth distinguishing briefly between two kinds of diversity. The one that we typically talk about, which is demographic, differences in gender, race, social class, and so on. In the book, I focus on diversity of thought, cognitive diversity. It's worth saying there's often an overlap between these two things. But I try and get away from the idea that diversity is a box-ticking exercise because it's a lot more subtle a lot more powerful and a lot more potentially transformative
2: than that. There was an overlap in the lack of diversity demographically within the CIA and the lack of cognitive diversity in the CIA that you argue in the book led in part, at least, to the chronic failures ahead of 9-11.
1: I think it was a very significant factor. And you're absolutely right. When it comes to intelligence spotting terrorist threats... Cognitive diversity is shaped by demographic diversity. The problem with the CIA is they had very rigorous recruitment metrics, but they were looking at them individual by individual. They're all smart, all analytical. Each analyst would have been a massive asset in a more diverse team. But the problem is they weren't diverse. They were almost all white, male, West Coast, Protestant Americans. And it meant that the way that they perceived Osama bin Laden was vastly skewed. They couldn't see the threat. You know, bin Laden issued his fatwa in a cave deliberately because of the symbolism of a cave in Islamic culture. People at the CIA thought this was evidence of primitiveness how could this person possibly outcommunicate the world's leading communications nation? And that continues all the way through to the 9-11 plot itself. And I genuinely feel, and I think I stack it up pretty uh, persuasively in the book, I hope so anyway, that the lack of diversity was the significant factor in not identifying the threat.
2: Talk to me about hierarchies, dominance hierarchies, and the role that that played in a very famous, or I should say infamous attempt to summit Everest? Yes, so human
1: beings have a very highly attuned status psychology. You can put five strangers together and within seconds... Hierarchy, social hierarchy is developing, and somebody outside the room looking at the five strangers talking through a window can accurately place people at the different rungs of the hierarchical ladder. And what typically happens in a group with a very dominant person, an alpha, is people gravitate towards that person's perspective. Instead of saying what they truly think, they say what they think the leader wants to hear. You see this in meetings up and down the country. But in Chapter 3 on Everest... It was a group of people. Conditions were changing rapidly. Different people had different perspectives and insights that were key to informing the strategy, but they weren't speaking up, which meant the leader was taking strategic decisions without the insights of the group, and it led inevitably to disaster.
2: And In that case, the leader himself was not an egomaniac. He just wrongly thought, in your view, that the power hierarchy that he designed before the ascent was the best way to keep people alive. And in fact, it wasn't in your view.
1: Exactly that. So what he said the day before, they said, look, you can tell me what you think when we're down from the mountain, but on that mountainside, my word is law and you obey mutely. You obey without question. Now that's fine if the person leading the expedition knows everything there is to know. But if other people on the expedition have insights... That are crucially important and of course on a mountainside conditions are changing fast people are seeing different things at different places so that was a judgment that he made i think because he hadn't realized just how sensitive we are to that dynamic and it just meant that they weren't able to make the right decisions this happens in aviation all the time big problem in the past in aviation aviation 1970s there was a series of disasters because there was poor crew interaction, precisely because the pilot was positioned as the dominant leader, the person with the right stuff, who was called sir, almost always a male. And it meant the engineer and the first officer didn't alert the pilot to safety critical information because they were worried that in doing so, the implication would be that the pilot didn't already know that information. And that might be met with a punitive response.
2: Can this mean that there's a particular problem in societies, perhaps like Japan's, where hierarchy plays such an important role? Yeah,
1: I think it can do. And one good piece of evidence in the mountaineering chapter is there are more deaths in tough mountaineering expeditions from nations that have more hierarchical cultures you definitely need hierarchy and in the simple environment hierarchy is great you can make a quick decision and coordinate around it in a complex environment it has much darker consequences because it means that people are not providing the information that they have and which makes the
2: team so much less effective tell us a little bit if you would about the different ways in which say japanese and american people think or perceive the world you give an interesting example
1: Yes. So, yeah, this is to do with thinking styles, I think, is what you mean. So uh, Americans are more analytical, um, Japanese more holistic and contextual. There's the example of
2: the underwater scenario. That's right. Where I think the Americans noticed the fish and the Japanese noticed the context.
1: Yeah. So the the Americans were picking out the fish. Uh, There were three fish. One was yellow, one was red, one had uh, dots on its belly. And the Japanese were talking much more about the context, how they related to each other, the background conditions in the tank, and other other things of that kind. So much more holistic. And that obviously relates to Japanese society. By the way, this is one tiny aspect of global psychological variation. We often, most experiments in psychology are carried out on Western undergraduates because they're the ones who are closest to psychology professors in order to. (laughs) Carry out the experiments. And I think often the inference has been drawn this is just what human beings are like. But we're actually talking about a very specific group of human beings. And Western undergraduates anchor the tail of the distribution. So it is worth noting there is a lot of psychological variation in the world, not just in terms of how we think and feel, but how we actually perceive
2: reality. How do we distinguish between the dangers of herd mentality and, and the wisdom of crowds? That's an important distinction. Um,
1: The wisdom of crowds, obviously, a robust finding in social science, particularly important in prediction tasks. So if you take the average of a group of economic forecasters, they're typically more accurate than the most accurate forecaster through time. Because each of these economists has some insights, and if you pull those insights, you get a more accurate judgment. Um, And the technique of averaging means that the errors associated with the different economic models tend to cancel out in the aggregate. The problem with herd dynamics is where people are not saying what they know, the private information that they have, they're typically copying the person who chose first. And so you get these bandwagon effects which explain fads and uh, stock market bandwagons and bubbles and other things of that kind.
2: Averages can be good, can't they, but they can also be bad in the case of standardisation.
1: Yes, this particular chapter uses diet as a kind of narrative vehicle, and we have standardised guidelines in what we should eat. and. The reason we have standardized guidelines is experiments have taken place and they can see that on average, this particular meal is better than that particular meal. But the problem is that's on average. We all have different genetics and metabolisms and sleeping patterns and crucially gut microbiomes, which means that different individuals react in fundamentally different ways to the same meal. And I think across social science, we're moving from standardized solutions to personalized solutions because we're getting bigger data sets. If you test the same person a few times on a particular meal, and if, for example, you had sensors that were constantly learning about how we were reacting to different kinds of food with you know, blood glucose monitors or um, smartphones, you can get personalized recommendations specifically for you that's going to be an incredible change in our world. I think diet, the way we train, the kind of work we do, how we're educated, we're all different. And often, science, you know, even cutting edge science, isn't taking sufficient account of those differences.
2: You mentioned science and you've been to various, I think, diversity conferences, maybe diversity seminars, and you're not always happy with what you see. So, you looked into, as part of the research for this book, the science of diversity. What and did you learn?
1: And I think that's the, the key. You know, people talk about diversity, and often it's very vague. Diversity is going to improve your performance. That's not always true. If you have a sprint relay team... It can be distracting, right? Well, say they're all the same race, gender, social class, but they ha- and it's a relay team, but they also happen to be the four fastest runners in the world. <laughs> and someone said, well, hang on, we need to diversify the team. It's going to make us better. It won't make you better. It'll make you slower. And... You also see it, so so in simple tasks, diversity doesn't matter at all. You just want the four fastest people or the four smartest people, it's complex tasks. Where if you have the same four people who are smart, but think in the same way, they share the same blind spots. That's where you need the cognitive diversity that gives this massive uplift and collective intelligence. But you also see situations in big companies where they have a demographically diverse leadership team. And you think, oh, we've got this sorted. But they've all been at the organisation so long that they think in the same way. They bring the same sort of metaphors and examples when they're trying to reason through problems. And they're missing a much bigger picture. So my argument really is we need the science of diversity. And when you optimise it, when you actually understand the science, it's such a huge opportunity. I think it's going to be
2: the source of competitive advantage. Collective blind spots are a huge problem, aren't they? They are. And one of the problems is this we're dealing in 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 terms of unknown unknowns in a way as donald rumsfeld might have (laughs) might have said because john cleese you quote in the book everyone has a theory this is roughly what he said you can correct me everyone has a theory the problem is when you don't realize that that is your theory in other words you don't realize that there are alternative theories could you expand on that
1: yeah, it's a brilliant insight from from John Cleese. And, you know, one of the a best... A brilliant man with uh, whom I, I have had
2: lunch and supper one no to way. one. I have, yeah.
1: Well, look, we should talk about that because he's one of my heroes. I'd say one of my two great heroes, you know, him and Paul McCartney, for what it's worth. So John Cleese, and he tweeted me one. He'd read my first book, Bounce. Mm. And I was doing a Radio 4 documentary at the time about a science philosopher called Karl Popper. Yeah. And Cleese is a big fan of Popper. And I said, would you be prepared to take part in the interview? And he said, only if we can have dinner and I can quiz him on Bounce, because he had some queer, he had some disagreements with me on it. I've got to tell you, three hours with him over dinner was just one of the best evenings of my life. He's such an interesting person. And that quote, he completely gets the idea that we bring a whole range of implicit assumptions to how we think about the world. We think we are utterly objective and that our prism really captures reality. But it's when we work with people who are different that we see our own blind spots and we can help other people to see theirs. And that's where you get this improvement. And by the way, The Life of Brian, um, one of his great satirical movies. I cried with laughter. It's brilliant. And, And I don't know if you've ever seen the debate that he had. Michael Palin, him, Malcolm Muggeridge and the Bishop of Somewhere... And he said, what we're trying to do here is just try and ask questions that people who are hardcore Christians might not have asked themselves before. And it is a wonderful film in that respect. It was a very Popperian film.
2: Without leaving collective blind spots entirely behind, let's go back to where we started with the CIA. Explain why diversifying the workforce doesn't have to compromise ability? Because the CIA, of course, have always prided themselves, presumably, and you say so in the book, on being the best of the best. How do you manage to spread the net wider, but make absolutely sure that you're still maintaining quality. I
1: think it not
2: ins- which isn't of course to imply that other ethnicities aren't equally capable, but there must have been some reason why other ethnicities were not being included in the first place. And you do touch on that.
1: Yeah. And I think it's worth saying that I, I think all, all of that emerges. Recruiting in a genuinely efficient way emerges from this insight that the intelligence of a group is a function of the individual ability of its
2: members
0: mm-hmm.
2: but also on its collective diversity. So the individual members of the CIA, you say, might not have made mistakes in the build up to 9-11, but as a group, there was a fundamental problem.
1: I mean, so say, for example, you have 10 people in a team, and it's a talented group of 10 people. They're individually talented, and you're coming up with creative ideas. And each individual comes up with 10 ideas. You would think 10 individuals, 10 ideas each, that's 100 great ideas. But if they think in exactly the same
2: way, that's only 10 ideas. Or arguably one. Well, if they've all got 10 different ideas they're each, different then it would be ideas. 10 overall. But if they're similar of nature, then they might amount to the same thing. But yes, I yeah, so take possible. your point. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But but just imagine they had each individual had 10 different
1: ideas each. You would think that's 100 overall. But if they think in the same way and they come up with the same 10 mm. ideas, mm. that would only be 10 overall. You then have a diverse group who come up with different ideas to one another. That's 100 useful ideas. So this is a the point. These are two groups populated by individuals who are equally talented, but one group is almost a thousand percent more creative. That has nothing to do with any individual in that team, nothing to do. If you look at them individual by individual, you don't see any differences. It's only by taking a step back and seeing that it's a thousand percent more creative because it is cognitively diverse. So when recruiting, when composing teams, it's no good. I I think the metaphor I use in the book is, you know, it's like a... Um, entomologists looking at ants. You look at them one by one, you don't learn anything about the colony. You've got to take a step back and look at the holistic interaction to understand the way a colony works. It's much the same in human
2: groups. And you use another example as well as the ants, which is the imagined stomach operation where you use another analogy to help us solve the riddle, which is that you've got these powerful beams, which it's an inoperable situation. You've got these powerful beams that can kill the bad stuff, but in killing the bad stuff, they kill the good stuff. So how do you get rid of the tumour?
1: Yeah, and the experiment, it's quite a famous experiment, probably 30-odd years ago, is when you're given a metaphor from the military to read before thinking about the medical problem, suddenly there's a massive increase in the number of people who can solve it. In other words, we often reason through metaphors and analogies, but the more diverse team has a wider array of these things to help them solve problems. Um, So this is a really robust finding, because we talked about prediction, definitely improves in prediction. Creativity,
2: we've talked about, also helps in problem solving. And the answer, of course, to the riddle is that you hit the tumour with lots of little bursts of right. beams from different angles. Yeah, exactly. Because then you, you do enough to get it at the same time without killing the good stuff because it's entering through different areas. In that context, then tell us a little bit about the work you personally have been done in trying to help England win football tournaments and why you as England's former number one table tennis player, along with the likes of Stuart Lancaster, who was the manager of England in the disastrous 2015 World Cup rugby campaign, why you guys were called on and whether you think it was the right idea. Well, I think... Given you basically knew very little or comparatively right. little about football yeah, compared to, right. say, someone like Harry Redknapp.
1: Yes. And, you know, it was me, Stuart Lancaster, Lucy Giles, who's in, involved in the Sandhurst Military Training Academy, Manoj Badal, who's a British-Asian founder of tech startups, and others, uh, who weren't football experts. Yeah. And Harry Redknapp knows a lot more about football than any of us, and so does Tony Pulis. But the problem is you have uh, Southgate, Gareth Southgate surrounded by them. They know the same things. They were socialised into the same basic assumptions of English football, so they mirror each other and would probably become more and more confident about a potentially flawed policy. Whereas if you have people with different insights that are nevertheless relevant to the problem, you get an uplift. And I'm not saying this particular group is perfect on cognitive diversity by any means. I think it would be improved a lot. but the And really, refreshed. And refreshed, yeah. I'd, I'd probably we should see more of that in that group. But the... Really great moments have been when somebody has said, like Brailsford on big data sets in uh, cycling to improve diet. Wow, that's something we haven't heard about in football. That could be really useful. And other things of that kind. You get this cross-pollination of ideas. Um, And by the way, this is also true in modern science. Most of the great science, the hit papers, are from scientists who work in slightly different subject areas coming together to come up with completely new insights that would not have been possible within
2: those intellectual silos. And diverse thinking is crucial, you explain in the book, when it comes to creativity and innovation. Yeah, exactly. And it's not just
1: scientific innovation, but also um, commercial innovation. In The, the, the l-
2: suitcase that rolls, for example.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, so these are two technologies that existed for a very long time, wheels and luggage but it took until 1973, I think, for wheeled suitcases to come into play. And that's that's what's called recombinant innovation, bringing ideas from disparate parts of the world together. So why immigrants tend to be highly entrepreneurial and to create successful businesses because they've experienced more than one culture and they're able to bring ideas from two different cultures together that
2: nobody would have been able to do if they hadn't had that Um breadth of experience. Why do meetings at a very mundane level fail as often as perhaps you suggest they do?
1: I think the main reason is it goes back to the problem on the high slopes of Everest. You have a dominant leader and people are not saying what they think, but what they think the leader wants to hear. That creates incredible dysfunctionality because what it means is the intelligence of the group shrinks to the brain of the leader. That's nowhere near enough if it's a complex problem. And people do this unconsciously they'll often start converging around, they'll start, yeah, yeah, we, we agree with that. And they'll start riffing around what the leader is thinking. And that can be catastrophic. And Lee Thompson, a psychologist at Northwestern University, I think, said meetings, I mean, people will relate to this, by the way, meetings predict bad outcomes even more powerfully than smoking predicts cancer. And she's done a load of experiments in the lab just to show that you have a group of people, you find out what they know in advance, and if they share what they know, they get the right solution. But because of the dynamics of the meeting, they get the
2: wrong answer. And to return to that example in the book of of the aeroplane, where you've got an aeroplane running out of fuel, but the engineer and I think the the co-pilot simply don't say forcefully enough that if we don't try to land now, because there's a problem with the landing gear, if we don't try to land now, we're all going to die. 200 of us are going to die and 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 they just couldn't he knew it he knew it and and the captain was focusing on what was going on with the landing gear and yet because of the hierarchical structure 20 people died because they crashed into a a wooded area or whatever and went through a house which seems extraordinary to me and yet when you think about as as english people and maybe this is way beyond english people as well we have this such an acutely developed sense of embarrassment yes so if we think there might be a bomb next to us in the theatre in the right. middle of a play so, yep. we might very well not put our hands up because we are paralyzed by embarrassment yeah and
1: it's very brilliantly put in fact i wish i'd use that line in the book um the uh Interesting thing is you see this in operating theatres as well as in Mm. uh, cockpits. In cockpits, you don't see it so much anymore because they have great training to open up communication. Still a problem in operating theatres. And you talk to – so it's a very steep hierarchy between surgeons who can often – not always, but I think it is fair to say can often be quite egotistical – Uh, So let me just say... God complex. Yeah, God complex. I mean, look, let's admit that that is not a fair characterization of all (laughs) surgeons. But there is a problem, certainly with some older surgeons. I think that is fair to say. Um, And you talk to nurses about why they didn't alert the surgeon to a potential life-saving solution that they could see. But the surgeon, because under pressure, perception narrows and you can often miss the big picture. So, why a team's so important. And they'll say, you know what, I thought about it, but, you know, the surgeon could be difficult. And what if the surgeon already thought of what I was saying? And these internal dynamics, it's incredibly difficult to bring yourself to say something in that situation. Um, and Graham Greene wrote a novel called The Ministry of Fear. And he said something like, sometimes it's, I mean, he was... It was a wonderful paragraph, but sometimes it's easier to die than to speak up and risk social
2: embarrassment. And
1: I think that's a big part of
2: it. You touched on leadership, of course, in the book. If we bring together some of the things that we've been talking about, how do you create a leader who would base him or self him or herself on that, on on these principles, essentially on diversity of thinking, diversity of thinking, cognitive thinking, how do they harness all that together Mm. to become a better leader?
1: I think the absolutely key thing is when you try and talk to leaders about the importance of diversity, but it's vague, and they think this just sounds like political correctness, and if I hire people who are diverse but not as good as they should be, we're gonna lose, and if we lose in the marketplace, we're not gonna be able to sustain a workforce of any kind, you get pushback. It's only when leaders fully understand the significance of diversity and how it can improve their performance, how it can help them to meet the objectives they set. That's when you get the change in culture, in the way leaders behave and everything else
2: that's so important. We haven't touched on echo chambers. We've tried to talk a bit about the the positives that we can take from this, how we can learn, how we can improve as societies. Echo chambers are a very big thing at the moment, particularly because of how we operate online. What what are the dangers as you see them and how do we resist that? Yeah, echo chambers, um, there's a long
1: chapter on that in the Mm. book and through Derek Black, um, who who was a a neo-Nazi, white supremacist. The problem with echo chambers is we're attracted to people who think just like us. This happens all the time. You know, we want to be surrounded by people who are telling us things we already know. It makes us feel smarter. It validates our worldview. And so you have this great interconnected web called the internet, and yet people are retreating into these bubbles where they're speaking only to people who think just like them. And there can often be, in addition to sort of distorted information, a breakdown in trust between these epistemological tribes, these, that's probably the wrong way to put it, in, in, between these um, highly cohesive in-groups where they just don't trust anyone outside their community. That's not great for the collective intelligence of the world. And I think trust is, the, the lack of trust between ideological groups is at the root of that problem. And
2: strangely, in Broader communities, more populous communities, the, the groups, the little networks, they become more homogenous, you point out. In
1: the bigger the community? yeah, It can happen.
2: It can happen. So at a big
1: university where you can, because it's a big university, you can find people who think just like you. So you get this very homogenous network in smaller networks where you have to accept you're going to hang out with somebody who's a bit different because there's no one exactly like you. You actually get more diverse networks, a deep paradox in networks. You would have thought that the bigger, more cosmopolitan network, and this
2: is what is happening, I think, on the internet, and it's a problem for us. Do you think some societies are better at using the sorts of theories that you've espoused in the book than other societies? And how good are we in Britain? I
1: think, by and large, diversity is radically under-optimized in corporations, in political institutions, uh, in in army leadership groups and beyond. So I think this is a, you know, it's a massive opportunity um, to grasp the science of diversity, a rigorous science. And to change the
2: world in really wonderful, beneficial ways. We have to beware the caveat, of course, because just because we want more Muslims or more whoever in the intelligence services doesn't mean to say that all Muslims think the same. There's great diversity within the Muslim world or should go without saying. But I think it's a point you make in the book.
1: Yeah, and otherwise, you end up with stereotyping. So one needs to both understand that we need diverse thinkers, but not to think that people who are of a particular category think in the same way. There's massive variation within and between groups. But I, don't, you know, I wouldn't want these difficulties to, to hinder. You know, I think once you get it, and there are organisations that are beginning to get it,
2: things can really flow from there. Cass Sunstein talks about group polarisation. The way in which a group can condense what it thinks or bring together what it thinks in a more intensified way the more time it spends together so you might have a bunch of brexiteers who are soft brexiteers to start with they become entrenched Brexiteers. they become hard Brexiteers. we could say the same about remainers perhaps does that resonate with you oh yeah and uh, yes yeah, well studied finally or penultimately What surprised you most or interested you most in writing the book? Did you learn stuff?
1: Oh, yeah. That's the best thing about writing a book. That's why I want to write my next one. Um, You learn so much as you read great researchers. And you just need to find the stories that provide the narrative vehicle for the evidence that's already out there. So, yes, it's a massively enlightening
2: thing to write a book. And very funny because you've got to go on stage did you learn anything in this book that would have made you not only the number one tennis player in England, <laughs> but the number one tennis player in the world?
1: Table tennis. It would have helped, by the way. I was asked this question this morning. It's a, it'd be a long answer, but yes, we were way too insular in table tennis. And there were opportunities to take insights from other sports that would have been hugely beneficial to the way we trained and the way we recovered. And I wish I had understood the power of diversity as a sportsman.
2: Matthew Saeed, thank you very much. Thank you very much.
0: This week's podcast starred Matthew Syed and was presented by Matthew Stadlin. It was produced by Dana Altkolt and me, Vas Christodoulou. The editor was John Daugherty. If you like this week's programme, you can find more just like it on our website, howtoacademy.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. From Simon Sinek to Melinda Gates, Cass Sunstein to Rory Sutherland, you'll discover a treasure trove of new ideas for improving your life, business and society as a whole. And of course, you can see our guests in person at the live events we host almost every night here in London. Next week, we're back with a general election special starring the Conservative minister turned independent MP Rory Stewart. Thanks for listening.